Hi, I'm Penny. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Thanks to a loving God, program of Alcoholics Anonymous sponsor. Um, I have uh, not used or abused alcohol or any other substance that allows me to take a trip without leaving my chair since October 9, 1977. My home group is the Saturday Morning Principal Studies Group in San Ramon, California. We're a Steps and Traditions meeting, and we're kind of an unusual group for our area. We're a small meeting. We're only about 40 people in our room, 40 chairs in our room. And um, on Saturday morning at 8.15, when we study the steps, most of those chairs are filled. And on the Saturday mornings, um, when we're studying the traditions, all of those chairs are filled. And we have people sitting on the floor to talk about the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's really unusual in our area. I don't know how it is here in Bellevue. I know there's real strong AA here, but it's really unusual in our area. Um, I have a sponsor, and my sponsor is Peg M. And um, I talk to Peg every Thursday morning at 8.30. Um, I sometimes talk with her more frequently, especially lately. <laughs> um, but I always speak with her on Thursday mornings at 8.30. And, and the, the things that I've just shared with you are, are the things that I need to hear when I stand at a podium or, or participate in a meeting or sit in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I am an alcoholic and that I know that, that I have a sobriety date and I know what it is, that I have a home group and I know what the meeting is, where it meets, when it meets, what kind of a meeting it is, and that I have a sponsor and I know who she is and that I talk with her on a regular basis. And as I tell my story, you may come to understand why that last part is really important to me. I, uh, I, just, I just need to tell you that I cry when I talk. Um, sometimes I cry before I talk, like today. <laughs> um, and that's because I am so incredibly filled with gratitude. I, I just cannot tell you how privileged I feel to be here this evening to participate in this, in this event and uh, this Christmas dinner. And um, to have my sponsor here, uh, to have sister sponsees that are here, um, to have people here that I've gotten to know in the times that I've come to visit uh, in Omaha and Bellevue. Um, an old friend from uh, when I was working in Albuquerque, and she lives in Kansas City now, drove up today to, to be here with us this evening. And, and um, she and her husband were up here at Cornhusker in August, and, and they loved they loved Bellevue AA, and she came back. And, and so it's, it's just a real, real privilege to be here, and it's a privilege that I don't take lightly, and I want you to know that. I, um, I'm one of those alcoholic women that drank as much as I could for as long as I could until alcohol stopped working for me, and then I tried better living through chemistry. Um, I grew up in, in a small town uh, back in Michigan, and, um, and I never felt a part of. I always felt apart from. I... Um, you know, if you look at my yearbook, um, you know, Clancy talks about alcoholism being a disease of perception. And, and if you look at my high school yearbook and you see all of the activities in which I participated, you might think that I was really popular in high school. And, um, and that would, might be your perception. My perception is that I tried a lot of places to fit in, and I didn't fit in on any of them. I didn't fit in, I didn't fit in on the softball team, and I didn't fit in on the volleyball team, and I didn't fit in on the basketball team, and I didn't try fit in on the school paper or the school yearbook or the literary magazine, and, but I tried all those things. And um, I didn't drink in high school. That probably would have helped, but I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, but I hung out with a lot of people that, that drank and used. Um, you know, I hung out with the jocks, and they drank beer, and, and I hang out, hung out with the people on the literary magazine, and they smoked some of those funny cigarettes and did some of those little pills, and... And um, I hung out with other people that did some drugs, and, and I didn't do any of that stuff. And, and um, I graduated from high school, and I got engaged at my senior prom. 
and uh, broke the engagement five times in the next year. Couldn't get the message. <laughs> Slow learner. <laughs> and um, the last time he gave me the ring back, he said, "If you walk out of, if you give me this ring back one more time, I'm going to walk out of your life, and you're never going to see me again." And I was 18 years old, and I was from this small town in Michigan, and I didn't fit in anywhere, and I couldn't be self-supporting through my own contributions. And um, I thought, if I don't marry this man, no one will ever want me, and I'll be an old maid. And I got to tell you, when I was 18 years old in the small town of Michigan, that was a big deal. Thirty uh, years later, <laughs> I don't really care. <laughs> I um, we got married a month after my 19th birthday, and and we went to New York on our honeymoon, and we we went to some nice cocktail lounge, and I ordered a drink, and um, you know I'd always been a fan of the movies of the 30s and 40s, and and I loved the actresses from that era. Joan Crawford and Betty Grable and Carol Lombard, and the way they looked in those movies, and the way you know the way they looked when they drank, and you know they held those glasses, and, <laughs> and they usually had a cigarette in this hand, cigarette holder, you know, and the poses, you know, and I remember sitting in 19 years old, sitting in a bar in New York, and I took a drink, and and uh, I looked, I felt like they looked, it was magic, and. And uh, the next morning when I was puking in the toilet, um, <laughs> I probably wasn't thinking of Piper Laurie or Lee Remick in the days of Wine and Roses. <laughs> I, um, my husband and I returned from our honeymoon, and we worked together. And we'd go to work, and we'd come home, and we'd stop at this little party store on the way home, and he'd pick up a six-pack of beer, and we'd go home, and he'd drink, and we'd fight, and I'd cry, and he'd pass out. And when a six-pack stopped working for him, we'd pick up two six-packs of beer, and We'd go home, and he'd drink, and we'd fight, and I'd cry, and he'd pass out. And when I got to three six-packs of beer, I uh, realized that my marriage wasn't working. And um, so I thought that I could either have a baby to save my marriage, or I could drink with my husband. And um, I'm very grateful that I didn't bring a child into what was to be the hell of my life. Um, I chose alcohol. Now, I didn't like beer, and it was a party store. All you could buy was beer or wine. So I bought wine. And, uh, you know, I live out in California now, and I um, I live near the Livermore Valley. I work in the Livermore Valley. I live near the Livermore Valley, and I guess they have really fine wines there. That's what I'm told. <laughs> and um, we're not far from the Napa Valley, which I know they have beautiful wines in the Napa Valley. And I would love to tell you, being from that area, that I drank really nice wines. <clears throat> <laughs> I was a winette. I drank Ripple. Um Ripple drinkers in the audience. <laughs> yeah, uh, my friend Claire from Southern California, she describes herself as a winette, and she drank Ripple. And I have a friend Cheryl from Portland, Oregon. She drank Ripple, and I drank Ripple, and we all got sober around the same time, and Ripple went out of business. <laughs> Coincidence, we think not. Um, I, um, I didn't necessarily like Ripple. I... Um, Ripple came in different flavors. Now, Reggie and I have had this discussion, and he knows, he remembers the flavors. I just remember the different color labels. <laughs> and there was a red label, and there was a white label, and there was a green label. There was a pink label, a purple label. I would buy one bottle of each different color label. And I would go home, and I had this big tub, and I'd pour all the bottles into one tub, and I'd mix them together, and I'd pour them back into the bottle, and I had my own private label, Rainbow Ripple. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
And that's where my drinking started. I love it when I tell that story and people actually groan. It's like, excuse me, this is Alcoholics Anonymous, and you're groaning over that. <laughs> yeah, I, um, that's where my drinking started. And um, where my drinking took me was um, drinking in skid row bars and supporting my habit the way women who drink in skid row bars support their habit and passing out behind empty dumpsters and drinking warm beer with cigarette butts in it. Um, I wasn't a pretty drunk, and I wasn't a nice drunk. I was an angry drunk. I um, I was a fighting drunk. Um, I fought people who tried to eject me from, from bars. Um, I didn't drink in nice places, and I didn't do nice things. I left my first husband when he threw me through the living room window the second time. I'd gone back to him after the first time. <laughs> Some of us are sicker than others. <laughs> I... Um, I got out of that marriage and, and um, I moved in with my sister. Now, I, I know that, you know, we're not supposed to name anyone else an alcoholic, but if it walks like a duck and drinks like a duck. <laughs> I was married to a duck and I, I left him and I moved in with my sister, who's probably a duck, and lived with her for a while. And then I moved in with a roommate that's probably a duck and lived with her for a while. And, and then I... Um, I realized that I couldn't be self-supporting through my own contributions, that I didn't know. You know. I probably could have if I'd tried, but I didn't know how to do this deal. I didn't know how to show up for, I didn't know how to show up for a job. Um, when I got paid, I, you know, it was, it was a big decision. Am I gonna, am I gonna support my habit or am I gonna pay my rent? And paying my rent never won. Am I going to support my habit or am I gonna pay my bills? Paying my bills never won. Um, and so I, I needed to find somebody to support my habit, and, and I found someone. I, um, and I convinced him he wanted to marry me, and he did. And he wasn't a duck. He had some other problems, he just wasn't a duck. And, and he thought there was something wrong with the way I drank, and I thought he just didn't know how to have a good time. And, um, and I didn't think that, it, that you know, I, our big book talks about we shall not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. Um, there are some parts of my story that I'm not real proud of, but I know that they're my story. And, and what I'm grateful for today is that I don't live that way today. You know, um, I'm not proud of the fact that I couldn't show up for my job and I couldn't do a day's work for a day's pay. And I'm not proud of the way that I supported my habit in those bars. I'm not proud of the fact that I didn't think that marriage vows really counted for anything. Um, my, um, my husband, for some reason, thought that I should come home after work. And I didn't agree with him. Um, he, for some reason, thought that I shouldn't be sleeping with anyone other than him. And I didn't necessarily agree with him. But, you know, once I took a drink, I didn't have a choice. I came to in places with people I didn't know who, who they were, where I was, or how long I'd been there, where I'd been. I tried to use that as an excuse one time for maybe not being an alcoholic. Because I, I explained to the sponsor du jour at that time that... Um, that since I was a blackout drinker, most of my story is hearsay. <laughs> and, um, and maybe those people were lying to me. And if they were lying to me and I didn't really do those things, then maybe I'm not really an alcoholic. Now, if you're new and you're going to try this, let me just suggest to you that it's probably not going to work if you have a sponsor that's working a program. Um, I... Um, I was a blackout drinker, and, and um, my marriage, my second marriage was on the rocks. And so we came up with a solution. We decided that uh, it was because we lived so close to family 
and because I had all of these bad influences on me from my job and my drinking companions and that what we needed was a change of location, that a change of location would fix it. Now, when you live in Michigan and it's winter and there's 24 inches of snow on the ground, a change of location sounds really good if it's Hawaii. <laughs> so we moved to Hawaii. And... Um, <laughs> And it took care of my drinking for a long time, probably about a week. And that's about all it took for me to find the liquor stores, learn the liquor laws, find the bars that I liked. They were usually dark. They usually had sticky floors. They usually had a jukebox in the back with country, sad country music on it. And uh, <laughs> and those were the place. And the place that you know you could walk into once you got once you became a regular there, they knew what you wanted. They had it on the bar when you walked in, and you knew where your chair was. Yeah. Um, and I was one of those people that if I ever got as bad as the person at the end of the bar, I moved to another bar. I, um, my, um, I, my husband thought there was something wrong with the way I drank. And um, he would talk to me about that periodically, and he'd say things to me, and people in bars were saying things to me by this time, and friends were saying things to me, and employers were saying things to me about the way I drank, and the fact that I wasn't showing up for work. And um, and I didn't think there was anything wrong with the way I drank. And then one evening, my husband and I got in an argument. He had fixed a really nice dinner, and he had opened a fine bottle of wine. And I knew it was a fine bottle of wine because it had a cork in it. <laughs> I only drank wine with a cork when I needed the fiber. <laughs> you know, I couldn't figure out corkscrews. And the, I, I couldn't get them in right. And so it was just easier to just pop those puppies in. And... Um, <laughs> And then you didn't have that problem, and you never needed to seal the bottle again anyway. So my, my husband at the time had opened this nice bottle of wine, and it was sitting on the counter, and he was letting it breathe. And, you know, Ripple had never needed to breathe, so I, I don't understand breathing wine. And, and we got in this argument, and I picked up the bottle, and I chugged it. And um, then I picked up my plate with all of the arrogance of an alcoholic and walked out of the room and tripped over a thread in the carpet and fell. And my plate flew out in front of me, and one dog grabbed the baked potato, and the other dog grabbed the steak, and they took off. And, and my husband walked in, and I'm kind of face down in the poo-poo platter. And, and, he's, and I looked at him, and I said, don't say it. And he said, say what? And I said that if I hadn't had that drink, I wouldn't have done that. Now... Um, if anybody in here is questioning whether they're an alcoholic or not, I called it a drink. Non-alcoholics call it a bottle. Um, if you didn't find any problem with me saying that drink, you belong here. Um, and he just looked at me with all of that disgust that women alcoholics have often seen, and he said, if you hadn't of, you wouldn't have. And um, he left me there and walked away. And... Um, and I was upset, and so I got up and I followed him and decided that we needed to have a discussion about this. Now, in our house, we had these discussions where I argued, and he would wait for me to take a breath, and he would say, why don't you sit down and we'll talk about what's really bothering you? <laughs> and I would just get angrier, and I would go on and on, and he would wait for me to take a breath, and then he would say, why don't you sit down and we'll talk about what's really bothering you? And I would just get angrier. A lot of times I would use this to my advantage. I used to keep um, booze. Um, <clears throat> I used to keep booze in a Tupperware bottle or a Tupperware uh, container under the bathroom sink in the Kotex box, <laughs> and he never found it. And um, 
<laughs> I, I pick these fights with him, and then I, I go into the bathroom, and I'd lock myself in the bathroom, and then I'd sit down in front of the bathroom door so that if he tried to get in to reason with me, he wouldn't be able to. He never, never tried to get in to reason with me. But from that position, it was very easy to just get under the cupboard. Um, I didn't get that. Um, but he at one point called me an alcoholic, and, and I've been called a lot of things but I had never been called an alcoholic. And when he used those words, um, you know, it just, uh, I really felt that. I really, my grandfather had died um, from alcoholism. I'd had an uncle that died of a wet brain in a sanitarium. Um, my Uncle Ed had died from alcoholism. Um, my Uncle Fred was dying of alcoholism. Every single one of my mother's brothers and sisters um, has died from this disease or is affected by this disease. And... Um, and so when he used that word, it just, it cut into my heart. It just, I, and my, I had the only response I could have. I resolved that I was not going to drink. I would show him I'm not an alcoholic. I will be fine. Thank you very much. And so I quit drinking. Now, I was a daily drinker, and I didn't know anything about detox. I, uh, I thought I had the flu for the next couple weeks. Um, I, I thought that the hallucinations were perfectly normal when I had a high temperature and that it was probably because of some drugs that I'd done in college. And um, so I saw nothing wrong with the things crawling on the walls. Um, when that was over, what I discovered was that I couldn't deal with reality without a buffer, that I, every nerve was on, my, on the surface and I could not deal with, with what was going on in my life. And there was not that much going on in my life in the summer of 1977. Um, I had quit my job um, a month or so earlier because it was my natal birthday and I wanted the day off and I was afraid to ask my boss for the day off so I quit the job instead <laughs> and, and got the day off and got the summer off. <laughs> and um, so I couldn't deal with reality and I thought I was having a nervous breakdown and I thought that if I'm having a nervous breakdown and I don't have a good psychiatrist that they'll send me to one of those state hospitals. And I didn't want to go to a state hospital. I wanted to go someplace where I could maybe just rest and do the Thorazine shuffle down to the day room and watch the soaps and just maybe work on, a, you know, maybe a, a wallet or some moccasins or something. So I thought if I do, if I have a good psychiatrist, then I can go to a private place. So I, I went out searching for a psychiatrist and I went to see this guy and he asked me why I was there and I said I didn't like myself and he said, well, what is it you don't like? And I said, well, I don't like the way I look and I don't like the things I do and I don't like, and I didn't say anything about the way I drank because I hadn't had a drink in a couple of weeks. And he said, well, why don't we start with the way you look? Here's some diet pills. And I left his office that afternoon, and I went across the street to Long's Drugs, and I went in, and I asked to speak to the pharmacist. And I explained to the pharmacist that there was a family emergency on the mainland. And could I maybe have all of my refills to take with me, because it's hard to get prescriptions refilled when you're on the mainland and the prescriptions from Hawaii. And I walked out of Long's Drugs that afternoon with a little white bag full of little brown bottles full of little white pills. And... Um, I went home and I went back to see that psychiatrist a week later and I explained to him that those pills didn't seem to be working very well for me. There was something wrong. The house was clean, the pool was clean. Everything was perfectly fine, but there was And I just didn't know what the problem could be. But <laughs> And uh, he said, well, maybe you need to try these. And he wrote me a prescription for some other pills. And I went to a different pharmacy and I asked to speak with the pharmacist. And I explained that there was a family emergency on the mainland. And could I maybe have all of my refills? And I left that drugstore that afternoon with a little white bag full of little brown bottles full of little orange pills. And... Um, the summer of, of 1977 is a blackout. I, um, I, came out, I came out of the blackout at one point, and it was early in the morning, and my car was up against a telephone pole. 
and I don't know if I had pulled off and pulled up there. Uh, I don't know if I'd fallen asleep and gone off the road. Um, I know that there was no damage to the vehicle and there was no damage to the telephone pole, and it was a fiberglass Corvette. Uh, so that, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how that happened. I, I know today, I know that when I got here, that I thought I had a right to my seat in these rooms. And what I've come to understand is that it's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to be allowed to participate because I know from the things I've done in the time I was drinking and in the things I've done in sobriety that this is truly a gift from God because the things I've done should have killed me. The things I did should have killed other people, and they didn't. Um, I came to one time. I was driving down Alamoana Boulevard, and the radio was on, and, and Elvis Presley was dead. And, and that's all I remember. And that's all I remember from that summer. I came to one morning, and, and the EMTs were working on me because I was passed out on my front lawn, and my neighbors had seen me. They thought I was dead. Um, I, came, I came to, I used to, used to drink in my swimming pool. <laughs> I had one of those lounge chairs, and I had a little floating table, and I'd fix myself a pitcher of, of drinks, and, and I'd go out and get in the, in the lounge chair. And, and I came to one day, and the pool man had pulled me out. And he wasn't supposed to be there that day. And I don't know how those things happen. I don't know why God allowed me to get through that. Um, I know that, you know, I I, I tried those things it talks about in Chapter 3. I I tried switching drinks. I tried switching from scotch to brandy. I tried, well, I used to say I tried drinking only natural wines, and then someone pointed out that Ripple had never seen a grape. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I tried psychiatrists. I tried doctors. I tried... You know, I tried everything it talks about. I tried taking more physical exercise. I, I joined a softball team, and and um, and I was a shortstop on the softball team, and, and I was quick. Of course I was quick. <laughs> all these little white pills are happening. <laughs> I could get there. I just didn't know what to do with it when I got it. <laughs> I wasn't real accurate, you know. I was like... Um, and I was in a softball game one day, and, and my coach pulled me out of the out of the game very unceremoniously because I, I missed an easy field. I questioned whether his mother knew who his father was. <laughs> and um, and I got in my car and I took off. And and um, and I remember leaving Kapilani Park that afternoon and and driving home down Diamond Head Road. And there used to be a little rock wall along Diamond Head Road, out of Kapilani Park. And and I remember driving on that road and thinking, if I can just get this car going fast enough. To hit that wall, I can go over and I can die. But, you know, I hadn't had anything to drink or use that day. And I knew, I just knew that at the last minute I was going to pick my foot up off the accelerator and I wasn't going to hit that wall hard enough. And I wasn't going to die. That I was just going to wake up somewhere and I was going to be in pain. And I was in pain. I didn't need any more pain. I couldn't live that way anymore. And I remember that afternoon I went home and, and um, I hadn't had anything that day. And I don't know when I'd had my last drink or my last drug. Um, I know that I went home that afternoon and, and I went into the kitchen to fix myself a drink and for some reason before I did that I walked to the back of the house and, and I went to the very farthest corner of the house from the kitchen and I picked up the phone and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want to tell you that I had a moment of clarity and I knew that I had a problem and that I needed Alcoholics Anonymous. That I needed the 12 steps and I needed a spiritual awakening and I needed the 12 traditions and I needed Dick and Peg Martin in my life. and and. And, you know, if that was my story, I could just say that, and then I could sit down, and you could all have your dance. But (laughs) what happened for me is I was a bar drinker, and I supported my habit the way women who drink in bars support their habit. So I didn't like women when I got here. I didn't trust you. I was afraid of you. I was so dishonest when I got here, I no longer knew when I was telling the truth, and I knew you would know. 
You were the competition for the people that were supporting my habit because I couldn't support my habit anymore. And um, I called Alcoholics Anonymous and a woman answered the phone. And I told her, I'd like to know something about your program for a friend of mine that I think might have a problem. And she said, maybe you'd like to go to a meeting. (laughs) And I said, I don't think my friend would want to do that. Maybe you could send me some literature. You know, maybe I could do a correspondence course. (laughs) And uh, she said, oh, we don't send out literature. But if you go to a meeting, you can get some literature and you can meet some people and get some phone numbers of some women. And it'll sound like fun. And I said, I, I didn't think my friend would want to do that, but if she could just tell me about Alcoholics Anonymous, then I would tell my friend about Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and as many of you know, it's hard to talk about Alcoholics Anonymous without talking about a higher power. She used the word God. I interrupted her and explained to her that I don't believe in God. She said, oh, does your friend believe in God? <laughs> There's a word I sometimes use here, but since my sponsor is right in the front row, I probably won't do that. <laughs> she, um, she suggested that I might want to go to a meeting and go up to the first woman I saw and tell her I was a newcomer. And, um, and I went to a meeting. I, I went to the meeting at the Alamoana YMCA and uh, the Atkinson YMCA across from Alamoana Shopping Center. And, and I got there, and I parked my car, and... Um, and I walked up, and there's a, a lanai outside the meeting room, and, and there were a bunch of people out there drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes and laughing and joking and got like, coffee cups in their hands. I didn't know they were coffee cups. I just, they had glasses, in their, glasses and cups in their hands. And I thought, now that's the party I should be at. Oh, I have to go to an AA meeting. <laughs> and I, um, little did I know, you know. And, and I went inside, and, and it was, I, in my mind, the room was huge. In reality, it was, you know, small (laughs) and uh, there was no one in the room except in the very back where the coffee pots were there was one person a woman I went up to her and I started to say something and I started to cry and she looked at me she said oh you're a newcomer (laughs) and she took me outside and she introduced me to the women of Alcoholics Anonymous and the women of Alcoholics Anonymous gave me their phone numbers and some of the men gave me their phone numbers and the women took them away from me And uh, we went back in, and, and Ellen Kay was running the meeting, and it was secretary, and I was sitting right in the front row between Blanche and, and Renee, and, and Ellen said, now, do we have anyone that's here for their very first meeting? This isn't to embarrass you, just so we can get to know you. <laughs> and he said, would you like to give us your name? <laughs> and I cried through my whole first meeting. I cried through my whole first 21 years. <laughs> I um I I I didn't hear anything at the, I didn't hear chapter 5 I didn't hear the traditions I didn't hear and I didn't hear anything um you know I I didn't identify with anything anybody said I sat there all caught up in myself I I sat there thinking that my life was over because I was an alcoholics anonymous I sat there trying to figure out who the alcoholics were, and it was a closed meeting. I I sat there, um, you know, caught up in self-pity. And it's not that they didn't read Chapter 5 at that meeting. It's not that they did, because they do at every meeting. Um, You know, we all stood up at the end of the meeting, and and they held hands, and they said the Lord's Prayer, and I thought, "Uh aha, it's a cult. As my friend, my friend, 
Joan, her husband, says, you know, I, I sat there thinking, aha, uh-huh, I'm going to have to come back here and be a sunbeam for Jesus. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'll come back next week and they'll give me a tambourine and tell me which part of the airport to report to or something. I just, you know, I didn't know. I had no clue what this was about. I left the meeting that night and I, I came back a week later. I thought I'd join Sunday Night AA. I didn't hear 90 meetings in 90 days. I didn't hear get a sponsor. I didn't hear anything. Came home, came back a week later, and, and I walked in, and one person in the room back at the coffee pots, it was the coffee maker, Blanche, and, and she came up to me. She said, Penny, how are you doing? How many meetings did you go to this week? And I said, oh, I, Sunday night. I was here on Sunday night. And she said, but during the week, how many meetings did you go to during the week? And I said, Sunday. I, I was... <laughs> And she went over to the literature rack and she, she got a meeting schedule and she marked some things on it. She took me outside to Renee and, and she said, uh, I've marked the meetings where I'll meet Penny this week. Will you mark the meetings where you'll meet Penny? And Renee marks the meetings and, and she took me over to Connie C. And she said to Connie, she said, I, uh, Blanche and I have marked the meetings where we'll meet Penny next, this week. Will you mark the meetings where you'll meet Penny? And um, I went to meetings because I thought it would be rude not to show up. <laughs> um, I love telling that story today, and I always share it when I when I talk because um, when I introduced myself this evening, I told you that that in October of this year I had 21 years of sobriety, and um, in September of this year Blanche had 21 years of sobriety, and in August of this year Connie had 21 years of sobriety, and those women took that action with 30 and 60 days of sobriety. And the message that that carries to me today is that I am never, none of us are ever too young or too old to carry a message in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't have to do it from a podium. You don't have to do it chairing a meeting. You don't, all you gotta do is stick out your hand. All you gotta do is say to somebody, I'll meet you at the meeting tomorrow night. There's a meeting here on Tuesdays and we'd love to see you. They don't know you're saying that to everybody. Just say it to them. We're so self-centered, we think that it's, we're special. And that's why I went to meetings. And those women stayed sober. And I stayed sober. Left to my own devices, I tried my best not to. You know, I, I am really grateful today that I have been sober since the day I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know today that that's an absolute, absolute miracle because the way I went through my first year and a half, for, the way I went through early sobriety, I don't know how I stayed sober. You know, I um, I tried I tried doing it your way. I really did. I heard people say you got to get a sponsor, and I I looked around and I tried to figure out who who would I don't what do I know? I know nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous. You people are speaking this other language. You're using words like steps and traditions and easy does it and keep it simple. And what does that mean? Amends, restitution, huh? You know, and and I'm sitting in these rooms. And you tell me to get a sponsor, and I, I looked around, and and um, this woman kind of appointed me herself my sponsor, and and um, and I thought, okay, so I have a sponsor, and and somebody said you should be able to tell your sponsor anything, and and you know we come in these rooms with these deep dark secrets, and they may not be a big deal when we've been sober for a while, but you know when we're new, they're horrendous. That's what we drank over was so that people wouldn't know these things. Because we were so afraid someone was going to find out that we did something that was monumental to us. And when we're sober, while it just doesn't matter. And, um, and this woman was my sponsor, so I shared my deepest, darkest secret with her. And um, about a week later, I got a phone call from a couple guys in the program. And 
They asked if they could come over to my house. And they told me that this woman had shared my secret at group level and had told who had, who had said it to her, and they laughed about it. And, uh, and I knew I couldn't trust you either. And, um, and I wasn't going to. I knew you were just like those people in those bars. But I had no place else to go now. Um, my marriage was dying. And, um, and I couldn't trust you. And, and I didn't like the women. And um, I didn't know what to do. And um, so I tried, I tried talking to some of you. And, and I just, what I did was I went to meetings where, where people talked and other people nodded their heads at what someone said. And then I'd go to another meeting and I'd pass that off as mine. And people would come up to me and they'd say, God, you're doing great. You sound so good. And I think, why do I hurt so bad? I had this hole in my gut, you know. I, um, I tried looking at the steps and, and, um, and I thought, actually, you know, I, I looked at those steps. I, I, finally, I finally found a sponsor that worked really well for me. Um, I, um, I got her as a service commitment. She, um, some friends of mine in the program were, be, they were military and they were being transferred back to the mainland and she was their service commitment and, and, uh, they assigned her to me and she was, um, she was dying of, of a blood disease and, and, uh, her name was Peg Scott and, um, she had 16 years sober and, um, I had to go to the hospital a few times a week and read to her and she became my sponsor. Um, there was only one problem with that is that she was in a coma. <laughs> um, and I, um, I would take things that I heard people share in meetings and I'd, um, I'd go to the hospital and I'd read to Peg and, and then I'd talk to her about what I'd heard in meetings and my sponsor in the coma, uh, I knew that she was sending me because the, the big book says that, you know, you will, you will learn how to handle situations which used to baffle you. So I knew that I was getting these telepathic messages. <clears throat> from my sponsor in a coma <laughs> and um, about the program and the steps and how to use it in my life because what I was talking to her about were things that I heard in meetings people that I heard things that I heard people say in meetings things like you can take the steps cafeteria style and I, I thought that sounded like a good plan since I didn't like most of the steps um, I didn't really think I was powerless over alcohol and, and I wasn't really sure that my life was unmanageable you know I a few years ago I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, you know, there's times when I'm not sure I'm an alcoholic. And Polly looked at me and she said, Penny, have you ever listened to your story? <laughs> um, but, you know, when I got here, when I was new, I, I just didn't think I was all that bad. And, um, and I, I, it wasn't that I didn't believe in God. Um, I was hiding from God when I got here. And I knew you didn't want to be sitting next to me when he found me. <laughs> so it wasn't a good idea for me to do that second and third step. But, you know, I, I heard people talking about that four-step in meetings, and, and, and I looked it up in the book. And, and when I looked up the four-step in the book, I realized that I could do that four-step. Because what the four-step, if you turn to page 65 in the book, what does the four-step say? It gives you three columns, who you're resentful at, what they did to you, and what it affects. Now, i got to tell you, when I was new last week, I had no problem coming up with who I'm resentful at. I mean, I can come up with a list like that today. Well, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> we'll talk. Um, and I can tell you what they did to me. Most of us can. And I can tell you what it affected. Now, if you're working the steps without a sponsor, 
or with a sponsor in the comma, you probably aren't going to turn the page, so you're not going to see the sentence on page 66 that says to conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. That's how far I got, was to conclude that others were wrong. Uh, I did the fourth step, and then I took a trip, and I, I went to a meeting, and I, I walked in, and I picked out a likely him, and I asked him if he'd hear my fifth step, and he said, oh, sure, why don't we go to my place? And so we did, and I did the fifth step, and, and he thought I did a great fifth step. I I don't think he'd ever done a fifth step. I, I don't think he'd ever heard a fifth step, and I don't think he was sober when he heard my fifth step. I, um, and he told me to go on to six and seven, and I thought, how hard can they be? They're one paragraph each. And I did six and seven. And um, then I did eight and nine, and I had no problem with eight and nine because everybody on my list owed me amends. And then I had 10, 11, and 12, and... and um, you know, they kind of talk about inventory and, and God and spiritual awakenings, and I, so I didn't really think I needed those. So that's how I did the first 18 months sober. And I'm here to tell you that uh, that, that doesn't work. You know, I was afraid of the steps. I was afraid that the steps weren't going to work for me. I could sit in meetings like this. I could sit in discussion meetings. I could hit, sit in step study meetings, and I could hear you talk about the steps working in your life. And the thought that went through my mind was, you don't really know me. If you knew what I was really like, you know the steps wouldn't work. I sat in meetings and I heard people say, let us love you until you can learn to love yourself. And I thought, what's going to happen when you find out I'm not lovable? Because if you knew what I did, you'd know what I was really like. You wouldn't sit now. You wouldn't want me for a friend. You wouldn't want me for a sponsee. You wouldn't want to sit next to me in a meeting. You wouldn't want me to even go to coffee with you. I remember sitting in meetings and listening to people talk about having slips. And um, and I thought, that's what that's what I need. What I'll do is I'll have a slip, and then I'll go out, and I'll do it right this time. Because I came into AA on my own. Nobody came and got me. Of course nobody came in and got me, came out and got me. I, you know, it wasn't until I was sober a while that I realized that when I called AA, I didn't stay on the phone for longer than three minutes because I thought they were tracing the call. <laughs> you know? So I thought I'd go out and have a slip. And then I'd call, and they'd send someone to 12-step me, and they'd get me to the hospital, and I'd get to detox, and I'd go to treatment, and then I could go to the halfway house. And we had this halfway house in Hawaii called the Women's Halfway House at St. Francis. And they called the alumni of the Women's Halfway House the St. Francis Bells. And I was jealous I wanted to be a bell. <laughs> oh, maybe I'd have to wear a bonnet. <laughs> and... Um, so I decided to have a slip. And, you know, I got to tell you, after a meeting one night, I, I was sitting at coffee at this place called Coco's and, um, just off Capulani Boulevard. And, and I'm sitting there, and, and I, this guy sitting across from me, his name's Harry Lake, and I know that I did not mean to say this loud enough for Harry to hear this. I don't know who I was saying it to. I have no idea who was sitting on either side of me. But I, I said, when I have my slip, and Harry heard me. And Harry had 13 or 15 years sober when I got sober. And Harry reached across the table, and he grabbed me by my T-shirt, and he pulled me halfway across the table, and he said, when you what? And I said, when I have my slip. And he said, who the hell told you you were going to live, girl? And you know, um, in the next month, month and a half, three people that I got sober with picked up a drink and died. And I know you can't scare an alcoholic soap. <coughs> Um, I don't know why I was graced with the gift of sobriety. I don't know how I stayed in these rooms without picking up a drink and not working the steps. I don't know how I took the booze and the drugs out of me and didn't fill them up with anything. 
The only thing I did right was I went to meetings, and I didn't drink, and I didn't use, and I showed up. And, and I did it all wrong. And somehow I stayed sober. And at 18 months sober, I was, I was nuts. And, you know, my solution was no longer having a slip. Now my solution was suicide because I knew this program didn't work for me. And, and I have come to understand why people shoot themselves in the head and not the heart because my head was killing me. And, um, and I sat in these meetings, and I was just so scared, and I couldn't tell you, and I couldn't trust you. And I went to a meeting one night. I was going to kill myself on a Saturday. It was a Friday night meeting out at Pearl Harbor. And, and I went into that room, and, and um, I stood there in the back of the room with all of the anger and arrogance of, of a dry, an alcoholic on a dry drunk. And, uh, and I stood there, and um, I got angrier and angrier as the meeting went on. And, and it was over, and I turned to leave, and somebody grabbed me and pushed me up against a car. And they said, you know, Penny, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to die. And... Um, and I looked at him with all the arrogance of a female alcoholic, and I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And I walked out. And I, um, you know, he didn't tell me I was going to drink, and he didn't tell me I was going to use. He told me I was going to die. And, and I left that meeting that night, and I got in my car, and I cried all the way home, and I didn't kill myself the next day just to prove that he was wrong. <laughs> I'll show him. And um, shortly after that, God put a woman in my life from Southern California, and she was about 12 years sober, and she believed that recovery from the disease of alcoholism comes through the 12 steps as they're outlined in our big book. And through some quirk of fate, she wound up staying in my home. And, and I thought that she was a whole new audience for everything that had happened in my life. And I started to tell her my terrible tale of woe. And, and I told her about my ex-husband throwing me through windows. And my ex-husband, my other ex-husband leaving me and, and emptying out the, the savings account and overdrawing the checking account. And I told her all these things. And, and she just waited till I took a breath. And she said, she said, you know, Penny, that's really interesting information. But you're an alcoholic and you haven't worked the steps. And it was clear that she hadn't really understood what I was saying. <laughs> so I shared a little bit more. And um, I told her about, you know, the husband leaving, the second ex-husband leaving me this note that he's gone out of town and he'd be back in a week and we needed to talk. And that was more than a year at that time. It's 20 years now. He's not back yet. <laughs> and uh, she said, Penny, that's interesting information, but you're an alcoholic and you haven't worked the steps. And I told her about, you know, my car being repossessed and being evicted from my home and all these creditors after me and being sued for half a million dollars. No matter what I told this woman, when I'd pause to take a breath, Kay would look at me and she'd say, Penny, that's interesting information, but you're an alcoholic and you haven't worked the steps. Well, what's an arrogant alcoholic to do? I worked the steps to prove they would not work for me. And uh, the message that I want to carry this evening is that the steps don't know who's working them. The steps just work. The steps do not know how long I'm sober. The steps just work. The steps do not know why I'm working them. The steps just work. The steps do not know how many times I've worked them before. The steps just work. The steps do not know that I'm a woman. The steps of Alcoholics Anonymous just work. And um, and Kay had met my sponsor in a coma. She, suge- <laughs> she suggested that I might want to get a sponsor that was actively going to meetings. <laughs> She helped me find one. Um, And she helped me find a sponsor that believed that recovery from the disease of alcoholism comes through the 12 steps as they're outlined in our big book. And I got a sponsor that took me through the steps. And uh, she took me through uh, Chapter 3 for Step 1 because she said that's where it says that we had to concede to our innermost selves that we're alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. And she took me through Chapter 4 for Step 2. And she helped me to understand who am I to say there is no God. And that I don't have to believe in the God of my childhood. 
that all I have to do is have that small mustard seed of a belief. And that I didn't even have to believe in my God. I could just believe in her God. And I got to tell you, when we got to step three and we did the third step prayer, I didn't pray to my God. I prayed to her God. I prayed to a borrowed God for a long time. The other thing about step three, you know, I told you that when I was drinking, I came to one time on my front lawn with the EMT working on me because my neighbors saw me there. They thought I was dead. When I did the third step prayer, I had to make sure that the curtains were drawn and no one could see in. Now, it's okay for my neighbors to see me passed out on my front lawn, but God forbid they should see me praying, you know? <laughs> my alcoholic mind, this is where my alcoholic mind will take me. Um, she took me through step four, and i got to tell you, I was scared of step four. And she showed me in step four the five prayers that I didn't have to do it alone, that I could do it in partnership with a higher power. And the first time I did it, I did it in partnership with her higher power. She showed me that... You know, the prayer about the sick man and, and the prayer where we pray for the right ideal. And since the sick man had been my right ideal for a long time, that fit me real well. Um, and then we got to the fifth step. And, I, you know, because of that earlier experience that I had, I was scared. I was real scared. And, um, and I did a fifth step as best I could at the time. And there was stuff I held back. And, um, and she took me on to six and seven, and she helped me to... Um, she helped me to understand that six-step prayer about willingness. And she helped me to understand that seventh, the seventh step. And, and um, that humbly does not mean humiliating. She took me on to eight and nine, and she helped me to get started on my, on my amends list. And, and she talked to me about the difference between amends and apology. The difference between amends and saying, oh, I'm sorry. She said, yeah, we all know you're sorry. You're one of the sorriest people we know. That's not what it says. And... Um, you know, I, I, she was one of those people that I went to, and, and I said, well, I heard in a meeting that I have to put myself at the top of my amends list. She said, if you can find it in the book, you can do it. You know, I looked for that for a long time. <laughs> and she explained to me, you know, that I'd been putting myself at the top of the list for a long time, and, and now what I needed to do was, was to put other people first. And, and she got me involved in service, and, and um, she took me on to the tenth step, and, and I got to tell you, you know, I, I had a hard time. I loved it when... Um, when Jimmy was talking the other night about, about prayer and meditation and saying, uh, people don't really do that, do they? <laughs> because I thought that, you know. I, I'd sit in meetings and I'd listen to you all talk about how you pray every morning and you, and you do a daily inventory every night. And I thought, you don't really do that. You just say it in meetings to sound good. And because I couldn't remember to do I couldn't remember to pray. And she told me to put my shoes under the bed at night and while I was down there, talk to God. And get them out from under the bed every morning and while I was down there, talk to God. And, um, you know, I have a water bed today, but, uh, so my shoes don't fit under the bed. But it has drawers in it, and that's where my underwear and my socks are. And I get down on my bed, down on my knees every morning, and I pray to God. And, um, and I ask him to guide me through the day. I ask him to help me show up. And, um, and she took me on to 11 and 12, and, and she helped me learn about service. And she helped me learn about about service that feeds my ego and about quiet service and about doing service and not getting caught, about picking up chairs, about picking up cigarette butts, about volunteering. Um, I want to tell you that, you know, I, I'm, in it, I'm on our inner group, our um, operating committee for our service center back in California. And um, when we had our, our inner group rep meeting last month, um, we didn't have the hotline covered for Thanksgiving Day. And... Um, and with the, in announcing that at the intergroup meeting, our hotline uh, coordinator had volunteers to cover all of Thanksgiving Day within three minutes. 
um, we had that covered. And I had the wonderful opportunity to, uh, to take the hotline on Thanksgiving Day from 9 in the morning until 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and I must have taken 20 calls. And um, most of them were people from out of town looking for meetings. But, you know, I got off the phone from that, and I'd gotten out of myself for a little bit. And that's what I learned, you know, that all I had to do was get out of self for a moment. I'd call my sponsor. I'd say, I'm going to drink. And she'd say, go wash your kitchen floor and call me back. What does washing my kitchen floor have to do with not picking up a drink? But I'd go do it. Now, I could have just called her back in 10 minutes and said I did it. I didn't have to, but I did it. I mean, I actually took the action. Well, not at first. <laughs> I remember her saying to me one time, this was, a, this was I guess, about a few years ago. She said to me, she says, oh, I'm sponsoring someone that reminds me of you when you were new. She's just like you. She does everything I tell her to do. And I said, Susan, I didn't do what you told me to do. And she said, oh, you did. I tell you to do something, and you'd call me back, and you'd say, I did it. And I said, Susan, I lied. <laughs> she said, no. I had, yeah. and, uh, but you know, I, I tried, and, and I started taking actions, and at two and a half years sober, I moved to the East Coast, and, and, um, and I got a sponsor there that believed that recovery from the disease of alcoholism comes to the 12 steps as are outlined in our big book, and, and expected me to be in service, and expected me to be active, and, um, and through, um, I, I got a job because God saw that I got a job, and, and I wound up having the opportunity to travel all over the country, and and um, I used to go to the old Fox Hall meeting back in Washington, D.C., where Dick and Peg got sober, and, and the friendship group, and, and um, where Peg talks about the guy and the, and the coffee, the tall guy, and um, Crazy Frank. And, and, um, and I got to go to meetings back there and, and be part of. And you know, that's all I'd ever wanted was to be a part of. And... Um, and I got a job that took me all over the country, and I had wonderful opportunities to go to meetings. And I was, um, I came out to California, and, and um, my friend Joan and I were talking about, about this, about moving in sobriety and how when, you, when you've always only been sober in one place, you don't really understand what people go through when they move different places. And, and that it is tough to find a new home group and to be a newcomer with, with some time in the program. And I went to meetings in Virginia for a year saying, Hi, my name is Penny Pennington. I'm an alcoholic, and you're not doing it right. And finally, somebody called me on that. I mean, why wouldn't they say something to me about that, you know? And I said, I do that? And I was. And, and, you know, they did it just fine in Virginia. They did it different than I was used to, but they do it just fine. People are staying sober, and they're using the big book, and they're working the steps. And, um, and I got out to California on a job about 12 years ago, and... and um, and I was only supposed to be there for six weeks, and, and um, there was a lot of stuff going on in my life. I, um, I was in a bad relationship. <laughs> I was in another bad relationship. But, you know, I was just, my problems were of my own making. And uh, I got out to California, and, um, and I wasn't doing well. I was on travel. I went to a meeting one night, and a guy with six months was chairing the meeting, and, and he called on me, and I said, you know, I, the problem I have is I don't have a history with you folks. And this guy was six months looked at me and said, so start one. And, uh, oh, okay. Shortly after that, I, I met a guy from Denver, Dick G., and, and he had just moved to, the, to California. And we started talking about um, being a newcomer when you're old-timer and having, having to do the same stuff over um, with time in the program when you're living in a new place and having to go out for coffee and, and having to do service and having to pick up chairs and mop floors. And that's what I started doing in California. And, and, um, 
and I got involved in the program. I ran away from home one night, and um, I was living alone, so nobody noticed. <laughs> and um, I went down to Carmel for the weekend, and and, um, and I was in a really bad place. I, I didn't know if I was going to drink. I just knew I was in a bad place. And the only place I know to go when I'm in a bad place is to an AA meeting. And, and I went to this meeting in, in Carmel, California, on Ocean Avenue, and, and I walked in, and I sat down, and there was a woman chairing the meeting, and and she asked for visitors from out of town. And I raised my hand, and this other guy raised his hand, and and uh, we introduced ourselves. And then she started the meeting, and she called on some people. And then she said something I'll never forget. She said, you know, she said, it's been my experience that when there's people from out of town in a meeting, that they've gone to the trouble to find the meeting, to find out if there is a meeting, when the meeting is, to find out how to get to the meeting, to find the meeting in the church once they get there. And I'd like to call on our visitors, because they may need to share this evening. And um, she called on me, and I shared whatever self-centered stuff I was going through that night. And, and then she called on this guy, and he was six months sober. And um, it was the first time he'd been in Carmel since he'd been there on his honeymoon 25 years before. And um, he was in a really bad place because his wife had died nine months previously. And she'd never seen him sober. And this poor guy, you know, if she hadn't called on him, he would have sat there. And he shared that in that meeting. And he was, I have once again been given the gift of seeing the program in action. Seeing people just surround this man after the meeting. And it's a reminder to me, once again, that what we say when we say the Lord's Prayer, that the alcoholic suffering is just not the one out there. That the alcoholic suffering could be sitting next to you. Could be you. Because I've been there, you know. I... um. I moved to California, and, and I, I'm active in the program there, and, and I had a good life. And um, and I was going along. I, I remember Peg talking a while back out in my area, and she talked about spiritual arrogance, about how sometimes we get to that place in our sobriety, and we think, you know, we're just going to skate from here. What else can happen? We're just, you know, it's life's just easy, and yeah, we might have some little upsets in our day, but, but you know, we've worked the program, and it's part of our life, and we're going to be okay now. And, and then something happens, and we find a whole new level. And um, a couple of years ago, I, I do this meeting with my sponsees once a month, and we go through the steps using the big book, and then we go through the traditions, and now we're going back through the big book from the very beginning. And we were on the fourth step, and I had asked my sponsees to do a fourth step, and, and I told them I wasn't going to ask them to do it in a vacuum, that I would do one too. And I went away to a retreat for the weekend, and I'm sitting in my hotel room working on this fourth step and thinking, geez, this is some stuff I need to talk to my sponsor about. Unfortunately, it's about my sponsor. And um, so I went downstairs, and I grabbed my friend Gloria D., and I asked her if she could hear my fifth step. And I did a fifth step with her that afternoon. And and Gloria had been through some similar stuff with a sponsor, and you know, she made some suggestions. And I came home from that retreat, and I was talking with my friend Polly, and she said, well, you know, it sounds like you've got to get a new sponsor. You know, I think Peg would make a good sponsor. And I thought, yeah, but Peg's in Bellevue, Nebraska, and I don't know if I want an out-of-town sponsor. And then I talked to Sharon, and Sharon said, you know who I think would be a good sponsor for you is Peg M. in Bellevue. And I said, yeah, but, you know, Peg's out of town, and I don't know if I want an out-of-town sponsor. And then I talked to one of Peg's sponsees, and she said, you know, Peg's a great sponsor. And I thought, well, that's three. <laughs> and, you know, the old, the old joke about the helicopter, the boat, and the National Guard. And so I called Peg, and, and, um, and it was my 19th AA birthday, and, and I got a new sponsor for my birthday. And, and um, 
And Peg told me what she expected of responsees and, and um, that I have to call her once a week and that I have to have a service commitment and that I have to be active in the program and that I have to go to at least three meetings a week and I usually go to more and that I have to sponsor people. And, and she told me those things and I could do that, you know. And, and again, you know, I thought, I can do this stuff. And, and then a year ago I celebrated a birthday and a month later I called Peg and my life had turned upside down and, and I didn't know what to do. And... Um, and I called my sponsor, and my sponsor, I didn't have to fill her in on where I'd been. She knew, because I talked to her every week. And, uh, and I'd met some of my sister's sponsees, and, and they knew me. And, um, and Peg suggested that I work the steps. Now, that's what Peg suggested. What I heard Peg suggest was, you might want to write a four-step. Well, I live mostly on six and seven. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll write a four-step. Well, I, yeah, I guess I should write a four-step. Well, probably I should write a four-step. And uh, I was talking with this friend of mine, and I had told her what Peg had said. And she said, did you ever start on that four-step? And I said, well, no, you know, I don't, I don't have a notebook. Because you have to have the right notebook for a four-step. You can't use just any notebook. It has to be a spiral notebook. And spiral down the middle, not across the top. And, and um, I said, but I was, I was meeting this friend of mine at this restaurant after work for dinner and I said but you know we're going to go over there for dinner and it's right close to Walmart and I'll go into Walmart and get a spiral notebook and she said don't bother I have one in my knapsack <clears throat> do you need a pen <laughs> no I don't need a pen and so I, I got this spiral notebook and, and you know I still couldn't write this four step and um, I, was, uh, I was driving to the airport on a Friday afternoon and I was talking to God and I was talking about this four step and what I realized on the way in is something that I'd shared with one of my sponsees just know, a couple weeks before, that, that I generally sit on 6 and 7. That's, that's what takes me back to 1 through 5, and that's what takes me forward to 8 through 12. And that what I'd done was I'd gone from 6 and 7 to 4, and I hadn't looked at the first three. And I couldn't write a four-step until I knew what I was powerless over and what was unmanageable. And I couldn't write a four-step until I... Turned it over. I couldn't write a four-step until I acknowledged that God could restore me to sanity on this issue. And so I did those first three steps on the way to the airport, and I got to San Francisco Airport, and God has a great sense of humor. Mine does. My flight had been delayed an hour and a half, and in my carry-on luggage, I had a spiral notebook, the right notebook. I had a big book, I had a pen, and I had a deck of cards, and I made the right decision. I put the cards back in my carry-on, and, and I sat down, and I started on my four-step, and and I rode on my four-step all the way from San Francisco to Okaboji, Iowa. And um, a wonderful place to go in November. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then I, I, you know, I spent the weekend in Okaboji and, and then um, flew home. And, and I, I need to tell you that there I was, 20 years sober, riding on this four-step. And all the way from San Francisco to Okaboji and all the way from Okaboji back to San Francisco, it was still all about them. It was all about them, and it was all about him, and it was all about her, and it was all about you, and it was all about everything but me. And an hour out of San Francisco, I saw myself write the words, it's not about them, it's about me. It's about honesty. It's about being willing. It's about faith. It's about trusting God. And I found myself writing about stuff that I hadn't written about 20 years ago because somebody had talked about me in a meeting, and I had been keeping that closed down for 20 years. And I wrote it out, and I called Peg, and we started on my fifth step. And she came to California a couple of weeks later, and I finished it. And um, we went on to, to six and seven. And, um, and, you know, my life has changed a lot in the last year. I, um, and it hasn't been easy. 
Um, I, I left a marriage of 10 years. Um, my ex-husband is, is 34 years sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We were very visible in AA. And, um, and he's a good man. There is nothing wrong with him. Uh, he's speaking at a meeting this evening because uh, this is his birthday month. And, um, and we have a good friendship today. And, um, and I have wonderful friends who love me and support me. And I have an incredible sponsor who guides me through. And I have sister sponsees that have been there for me during this year and, and this weekend and, and in October at, at, at the advance that we had. And, um, and, you know, if I had tried to figure out where my life was going to be 20 years ago, I wouldn't have picked anything that's happened this past year because I didn't have faith. I was just too afraid of what you all were going to think of me. And... Um, and it's been an incredible process. And I know that I couldn't have gone through it without a God who loves me exactly for who and what I am. Without the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Without the promises that are throughout the entire book. One of the greatest gifts I've been given is the promises on page 75 that come right after the fifth step. Because those are the promises that tell me that once I have taken this step withholding nothing, I am delighted. And I want to tell you that finally I know what that means. I thought I knew what that means before, but now I know what it means because now I've shared the take it to the grave stuff. Now there's nothing else there, you know. And it's, it's not that I wasn't consciously hiding that stuff. It was buried so deep I didn't know that. And what I know today is that I have been given an incredible gift. Um, we can look the world in the eye, and I don't have to look at the tops of my shoes anymore. I can look any one of you in the eye tonight as I share. I'm not embarrassed of who or what I am. Um, our fears fall from us, and I begin to feel the nearness of my creator. As I've stayed sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've gotten a deeper and different understanding of a higher power. I, I came to an understanding of a higher power as I worked through the steps over the years, and, as I, and it continues to grow with me. I have a wonderful relationship with God today. Um, I've been talking to him all evening. I've got to tell you, I was really nervous about talking here tonight. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there are so many people here that I know and so many people that I care so deeply about that have been a part of my life, some of you for only a couple of years and some of you for several years. Um, and I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to see AA in Omaha, Nebraska and to be a part of it for just a short period of time, a few times a year, to be able to come here and see the enthusiasm that you all have for Alcoholics Anonymous. I know today that I am in love with the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the part that Debbie read in the book is, is from one of my favorite parts in the big book. And, um, and as she was reading it and making her comments, I thought, oh, great. <laughs> Me too. You know? but, but where she left off, I want to read from there on because it's really my story. The last 21 years of my life have been rich and meaningful. I've had my share of problems, heartaches, and disappointments because that is life. But also I have known a great deal of joy and a peace that is the handmaiden of an inner freedom. I have a wealth of friends and with my AA friends an unusual quality of fellowship. For to these people I am truly related. First through mutual pain and despair and later through mutual objectives and newfound faith and hope. And as the years go by working together, sharing our experiences with one another and also sharing a mutual trust, understanding and love without strings, without obligation, we acquire relationships that are unique and priceless. There is no more aloneness with that awful ache so deep in the heart of every alcoholic that nothing before could ever reach it. That ache is gone and never need return again. Now there is a sense of belonging, of being wanted and needed and loved. In return for a bottle and a hangover, I have been given the keys of the kingdom. You know, when I walked in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, all I knew was the language of the streets. And you people spoke to me with the language of the heart. 
I came into these rooms and I knew you were going to talk to me about my drinking because people had always talked to me about my drinking. And you didn't do that. You talked to me about your drinking and you talked to me about your recovery and no one had ever done that before. And you saved my life and then you made it a life worth saving. And I can never begin to repay you. Thank you.